Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and today I'm speaking with Sophie Ottaway, who was born a boy in 1986, but with a rare birth defect that led surgeons to decide to remove Sophie's healthy testes and damaged penis and construct a neo-vagina. They'd made the decision that it was supposedly better for my life for them to remove the testes, remove the split penis, put in a, 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 a pseudo-vagina into a two-day-old baby, and then that, that baby to the whole world, included on the birth certificate, is, uh, is, is female. And not only that, but the surgeons warned Sophie's parents never to reveal the truth and to keep it a secret from Sophie herself and from everyone else. And it was only by chance that at the age of 22... Sophie found out the truth. And now, age 37, she talks to me about her life, her experiences, her understanding of what happened to her and her parents. And we also talk about gender ideology and the harm to children who are led down a medical pathway because they feel uncomfortable with the body in which they are born. Sophie, tell me what is your earliest memory? My, my earliest memory, I think, is probably playing in the street uh, with other friends from, from down the street. We used to like going rollerblading and playing roller hockey and kicking a football about a bit. Uh, good times. And did you make friends easily when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, yeah, always. Do you know, you, we just used to, you just come across someone and at that age, you just decide they're going to be your friend, don't you? And then all of a sudden they are your friend. What, what, what age would you say that you enjoyed the most as a child? When were you happiest or when were you most playful? I think probably that age around about five or six, seven, you know, all the way through to end of primary school, really. It was it was an absolute dream. It was probably the best childhood anyone could have hoped for. I don't have any negative memories of that time, really. And then what happened at the end of primary school? Did something change? Well, I guess it, it come primary school, you get to secondary school, things got a bit difficult. Uh, and around about that time, age 11... Um, was when I started the visits to um, the endocrinologist and I started being placed onto the hormones. Um, and I, I guess my life kind of changed a lot from, from that point. My interests, my hobbies, um, the things that I liked to do and the things I didn't like to do. You know, I became less active, less sporty, more into uh, the kind of dark, heavy metal music and that slippery soap of feeling a bit depressed in your bedroom. So you just mentioned hormones, which most... 11-year-olds don't have to concern themselves with, although puberty is a nightmare for most people, if not everyone, especially girls, it doesn't usually involve taking a shed load of pills. So let's go back a bit, shall we? And tell me about your birth, what you now understand. Right, so obviously growing up I knew that I had complex urological problems. Um, I was aware of the bladder incontinence um, and I was told that bladder and bowel were on the outside of the body um, and that was the reason for a lot of the things that were not quite right in my life. Um, it, when I got to age 11 uh, I, I got told that um, because uh, I didn't have any ovaries um, I had to start to take a, a hormone to replace the estrogen 
And and the story that I was told about the ovaries was because that my bladder and bowel was outside of my body. Um, the, you know, the ovaries had been damaged, they'd had to be taken away. But obviously we later find out that there were no ovaries. Um, and as we progress further in life, I, I, I learned to understand that my condition was called cloacal extrophy. Uh, and it's a rare birth disorder, one in 200 to 400,000 live births. Um, as I've said before, bladder and bowel on the outside, a split penis. Uh, but it, it's, it's largely a complex urological problem. Um, but what I obviously later found out um, in the doctor's surgery at age 22 is that uh, um, they'd actually changed my gender and that I'd been born wholly male and they'd made the decision um, that it was supposedly better for my life for them to, on day two, change my gender um, remove the testes, remove the split penis, um, create some fake labia, uh, put in a, 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 a pseudo-vagina into a two-day-old baby, uh, and then that, that baby to the whole world, including on the birth certificate, is, uh, is, is female. Uh, and my parents were told to raise me female and that I must never find this out because it would be too psychologically damaging. So they didn't think the psychological damage might come from the fact that you'd had unnecessary surgery and had to take effectively medication for life from just before puberty? No, it, it seems as though there was a lot of thought given to what they were going to do that day, but zero thought given to what happens thereafter. And that responsibility at that point seemed to have left the um, hands of the National Health Service and been thrust in the hands of my two parents that were very young at the time with a, a poorly baby. And, and you know, as a family, I guess I was in the blind for, for, for a lot of the time, but they had to try and figure out a path with absolutely no support um so yeah, i think it was difficult for everybody involved um i'm not sure how difficult it was for the health service but it was definitely difficult for our family well it sounded like they made a decision based on aesthetics almost i mean okay so we're looking at a baby that's been born with significant health problems which are separate from genitalia and unrelated to genitalia even if it might relate to the condition itself so you've got healthy normal testes and there's a split penis, and obviously that would have caused you some perhaps stigma, some unhappiness, some problems with sexual function later in life, but probably nothing compared to what you had to face following the surgery. I'll caveat it with we can only know the life we've lived, so I can I can never really know what it would have been like to have grown up male with erectile dysfunction. Um, but if I put a sensible, objective head on it, um, there's a few things that that come to mind about all of it, and and, and one is. In making that decision to change my gender, um, they disabled any ability to reproduce in removing the testes. So there goes there goes that option. Um, and, and the second thing is that um, if it was a complex urological problem they were hoping to solve, well, sat wearing incontinence pads at age 37, I would argue they didn't solve the original problem in the first place. So it sounds to me like they were looking at this in a wholly biological deterministic way that you couldn't possibly grow up with erectile dysfunction you couldn't possibly grow up with a tiny or damaged penis they had to have you they had to put you into another box and this has to come from deep-rooted misogyny in my view because the idea that they could try to create a vagina which they couldn't obviously 
and basically decided that it's better that you think you could be penetrated, um, but you know, in a way that would doubtless cause you massive dysfunction and no sexual pleasure, rather than making a decision later on in life how you deal with the damaged penis. I mean, I I did a um, a story a good few years back. Um, I found online a support group, and I mean, a lot of people laughed at this, and I think that that's deeply unkind. Um, at men who have tiny penises, micro penises, very, very small penises, talking to each other about the stigma, about difficulty in, in having sex, either with men or with women, difficulty in masturbation, difficulty in sexual pleasure, all of those things. Now, we laugh at that cruelly, and the stigma attached to men who don't have massive dongers comes purely from, I think, sexism and machismo. And women actually tend not to like massive dongers because they don't feel very good. I mean, trust me when I tell you I'm not an expert in this, I'm sure. My listeners will appreciate that. Uh, my, If I went on Mastermind, my subject would not be penises or massive dongers. But I suppose the general point I'm making here is that you weren't born with an intersex condition. Um, we, we know that some people would assume that you were when, although we've tried to point out during these gender wars, that even people, the tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of those intersex people that that have ambiguous genitalia are either male or female, wholly. You can't be a bit female and a bit male. So we know that this was, as I said earlier, purely based on the aesthetics and wanting to put you in a box that you hadn't chosen to be either in or out of. Absolutely, Julie. And I think they, if their mission was all about sex, and if we look at John Money and he's you know, been claimed to be a sexologist, and a, a lot of this, I, I believe, was driven by in order to be a, um, a human that can function in life and live a happy life, you've got to either penetrate or be penetrated. So if, if we look at the world through their lens, they even failed at that. Because while they put a, 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 a fake vagina into a baby of two days old, that obviously later prolapsed and it got put back into my body to be reabsorbed. I then spent a whole life with no vagina. They created no further vagina. I'm not saying I would want one. But what I'm saying is that if their idea was, well, the willy won't work, well, there was no vagina either. So what, what, what were they actually playing at? Well, quite. And, you know, to go back to my, you know writing that article about the men with small penises you know this this was this was actually about 90% stigma the problems that these men had was stigma and obviously we know i mean as as a feminist or as you know radical gay liberationists or any of those movements that look beyond the kind of um just sexist assumptions about sex as you've said penetrate or be penetrated those men would have been perfectly happy having sex in the ways that gave them and their partner pleasure without it having to be as I said you know massive dongers penetrating and I know we're getting quite quite personal here I think we need to and go there I think we do I, th- I think we do and and you know just just the idea and I think this comes back to the John Money thing which I'd really like you to tell our listeners about in case they don't know this comes back to the notion that 
there is a normal way to have sex and an abnormal way to have sex. There is a default position body, which is male. And and I think, you know, you have been incredibly courageous speaking out about what was done to you. Because I think that will impact on lots of young people who have been put through the system, the current system, into unnecessary surgery and hormonal intervention when they could have been living their best lives happily in the bodies that they were born in. So tell us about John Money, if you would, Sophie. Yeah, so John Money um, was um, a psychologist um, operating in the New Zealand area to begin with. Um, His work started peaking in the 50s. uh, And in 1955, um, he started with his theories of, of gender and he was looking mostly at a theory of gender identity and a theory of gender role. Uh, and he wanted to test uh, a theory of nature versus nurture. And basically, you know, when, when a human grows up into their gender, is it most informed by nature, i.e. like genitalia and chromosome, or is it informed by nurture, which is the environment that the child grows up in? Uh, and he, um, he had a hypothesis that um, it was nurture. And, and he, he kind of tested that hypothesis in, in the famous John Joan case, uh, which was uh, around David Reimer. Um, and for anyone that doesn't know the Reimer story, who's listening, uh, this involved uh, two twins in Winnipeg. Um, they went for a routine circumcision and the um, doctor who undertook the circumcision used a heat tool, which was a new technology at the time. And uh, the heat tool sadly decimated one of the children's penises. Um Sadly, um, the family was obviously quite distraught over this, understandably, um, and they were looking for a solution. And they became acquainted with um, John Money through the Johns Hopkins um, University Hospital in in Baltimore. Uh, And John Money decided that it was a great idea to raise um, this this boy as, as a girl. Um, David Reimer later got told uh, about this after experiencing a lot of mental anguish and, and, and when she found out at the time, um, very quickly went back into the male presentation and became David Reimer. Um, and and the, the sad story about all of this is while he went public on, on this stuff and he, he publicly talked about the fact that um, he proved uh, John Money's theory incorrect at the time. Um, he he passed away, uh, and and his 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 twin brother also passed away. Um, it was it was suicide for I think it was suicide for both. Was it Julie? I think so. Either way, you know we we can't deny that they had deeply unhappy and troubled lives, and they were experimented on. And if you read uh, the, the the book that was written, co-written, well, it was John Colapinto's book, but um, there's much talk in there about the Rhymer twins um, being asked to undertake sexual play with each other by John Money. So we've effectively got a guy of questionable activity who is doing questionable experiments with children that have been proven incorrect, who's then obviously rolling this stuff out into medical pathways around the world. Um, but what we have to remember is this same guy that is lying that this was a success in order to progress with those nurture pathways is the same guy that invented the construct of gender in the first place. And that's, 
I honestly think when we look at gender dysphoria, um, we're spending a lot of time talking about how should we handle someone who, who presents with gender dysphoria. But the question I think we all need to be asking is, where did gender dysphoria originate? Um, what even is it? I mean, it, it, the way I see it is it's where the birth sex or chromosome or genitalia does not match uh, the traits and attributes in their um, respective box. Uh, and therefore, there's a difference between society's expectations of what that, that person would be in the gender box and what their birth sex is. But what we all know as people is that we can't fit into manufactured boxes. If I, you know, if a girl can like anything a girl likes, a boy can like anything a, a, a boy likes. We've created a social construct and then we've created a dysphoria and then we've uh, and then we've looked at ways to, to to resolve a problem that I believe John Money created in the first place. Absolutely, and yet there is this paradox. There is a an issue for feminists like me about gender, which is that we use the concept of gender from the nineteen sixties onwards to explain the roles and the rules and the set of behaviours imposed upon, as we would argue, by patriarchy. In other words, by the dominant male sex class in order to curtail and define instructors in the way that we should behave. And gender, of course, is wholly distinct from sex, but gender is gender rules are applied to our sex in order to keep us in line. And so what feminists like me say, which is wholly different from Judith Butler and those other gender lunatics, is that we, of course, have a biological sex which determines um, various bits of you know our behavior and of course our anatomy and our childbearing potential or not or whatever but but gender rules in the main is what keeps us in line determines the kind of I love pink I want to please men I want to wear lipstick or I don't feel attractive I want to sit demurely and defer to men all of those things and similarly with boys, that you know, the whole notion of boys being revered as male the second they're born, in fact, when they're in the womb, and they're told that they're a little prince and that so many girls, so little time, emblazoned on their T-shirts from toddler age, all of those things that encourage boys to grow up and behave in particular ways towards girls and women. So gender is... Uh, in good part a social construct it's a set of rules but when we think that that is the be all and end all that you could literally just take a blank slate and raise that child in the way that you wish and the end result will be somebody who is quote unquote authentically female or male it's nonsense because none of us feel I don't know what it feels like to be a woman. I just know I am one in relation to men and the way I'm treated. Exactly, Julie. Now, I don't want to. I, I don't want to take anything away from anyone that that might have felt that feeling. Um, you know, I'm not saying that people don't feel that feeling, but I myself, while I've gone through a lot of trauma and there's obviously a lot of things that have been, uh, you know, changed about my life. I would have never said there was a point of which I felt I was in the wrong body. Now, if we look at society and I look at my medical records, I know that they forced me into the wrong construct because I was born 
holy male. So, um, but I, I do wonder a lot about all of this, this stuff. And when you talk there about um, the idea of role, you know, the idea that the, the, the boy is a great thing to have and, uh, you know, the, the masculine role, the dominant role, it's a whole separate conversation. But um, we've been talking about John Money's um, stuff with gender identity. But I, I mean, I need to do some further research on this. But the last couple of weeks, I've been wondering um, whether John Money has um, some responsibility for the whole idea of the patriarchy. Yes. Well, John Money, I think, was probably quite monstrous. We can agree on that. But going back to your visit to the GP where you saw on the screen the evidence that you were, in fact, born male, tell me about that day, how it then played out. Well, initially, it was like someone had dropped the biggest bomb on my entire life. I mean, it's 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 like... You know, everyone's got paradigms of life and, and, and their reality and how it's informed. And it was like one of the biggest things that underpinned my entire reality. The rug had just been pulled and I had to try and look at my entire life through a completely fresh lens. So if you imagine small sort of Yorkshire town um, doctor's surgery that's maybe got three or four doctor's rooms, uh, small room, locum GP, you've got the table in the middle with the screen on it. And you know how they put a, like a seat, a couple of seats to the left, a couple of seats to the right. So both sets of people can look at the screen um, and, and she types the notes in. So it wasn't the position where there was a desk with on both sides. It was an open desk with the, the chairs organised around it. And um, I just took a glance at the screen because I, 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 I never liked the doctor. Do you know, like something within me just never liked the doctor. And when I, when I went there, I, I just used to switch off because I don't know, I just hated going, but I knew I needed to go for this tonsillitis. And while the woman was rabbiting on about something or other, and my mum used to like having conversation with anyone, they were talking about God knows what, unrelated. And I looked at the screen and it was, yeah, on, on, it was um, some letter. I can't remember the exact letter, but I've seen my medical records and there are many that, that feature this same two lines. They basically put a synopsis in bold at the top, which is so that anyone caring for you in that sort of pathway gets a brief idea of what the problem was. Um, and, and that's where I saw it clear as day that it was it was an XY birth. Um, the, the testes had been removed. The, the, they call it bifid phallus, where it was a split penis had, had been removed. Uh, and there'd been a vaginal con- construction. Um, and obviously at that point, I was at age 22. Um, you've done enough science to know that XY means male. And, and you know enough about life to know that, um, you know, testes in a phallus is very much male. Um, yeah. And did you understand what you were reading in that moment? And did you say anything at that time or did you bottle it up until you left the surgery? At that time, our whole family, uh, my mum and dad included, never actually got the name of the condition until I had a visit to the hospital maybe five years ago uh, to, to, to a specialist centre Um the condition cloacal extrophy, if I'd have had that name at age 22, if I'd have been able to Google cloacal extrophy at age 22, I'd have been able to have very quickly within the top results found some medical papers that associate gender reassignment with cloacal extrophy and show that um, that was the pathway for children born with that condition. So what you mean then, Sophie, is that that is often what happened when babies were born with that condition, that they would remove healthy testes or reconstruct genitals? 
Yeah, um, I did some big people uh, who study this field. Um, I'm trying to, oh, Gearheart is one of them. Um, and I think Rena, Bill Rena is another one. And um, I, I think from what I've heard, I've never spoken to those people, but I know people that have, that um, they, they, were, they were following this stuff a lot. But their understanding these days, I believe, is that that's the wrong path and all this stuff needs to change. But um, at the time, there were papers written that were, um, you know, were showing the, the long-term sort of outputs of these children that had gone through uh, cloacal atrophy and had been reassigned. Uh, but in that doctor's surgery, when, when I left, um, I bottled it up in, in the surgery. I didn't want to cause a fuss in that room because I didn't know the local GP. And it, I knew that if I was going to blow the lid, this wasn't going to be, I'm angry, naughty mum. This was going to be like the biggest flip I've ever had in my entire life. And I, and I didn't want to have it in in the GP surgery. Um, sadly, I, I decided to have it in, in mum's Nissan Micra. Um, and it was uh, maybe five minute drive back from the, the surgery. Uh, and I went for it. I went for it. I really went for it in the car. And then I got back in, into their house and, uh, and I went for it again. And I went up into my room. I remember going into the fridge um, and, and, and getting a bottle of beer and just going shut in the room saying, I, I don't want to talk to you. Uh, my, my, dad, my dad came home from work that day early. Mum must have rang and said, you know, the one thing we never wanted to happen has happened. And we had a, I seem to remember we had a very brief discussion uh, but at that point, something something happened in my brain and it was it was not the right thing to do. But something happened in my brain and it said, I can't process this information. If I try to process this information now, I'm partway through uni, do you know, like I'm studying. My world's gone. My chance is gone. And I know that processing th this now in the mental state I'm in, where I am in my life, I'll be dead. Like if I try to process this, it's, 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 it's too much. I, the only chance I can have of surviving right now is to just put this thing on a massive shelf and deal with it. And the thing is, I never dealt with it. I just put it on the shelf. The, the, only, the reason I decided to deal with it was, was because I landed in hospital with sepsis, with, with this, um, you know, the, the, the sort of biggest prognosis being it's the failed pseudo vagina that was put in at day two. And it was at that point that one, I had to confront this in order to talk to the doctors, in order to get a decent prognosis. Uh, and two, something flipped in my mind at that point that, that said, I always knew it, it wasn't right. I always knew this was crazy, but this is absolutely taking it too far now. And if, the, if I'm in here nearly dead, thanks to these unnecessary surgeries, how many other children are going through this, but they've not got supportive parents. The parents have split up over this or the parents have passed away. Because the medical profession, they, they put nothing in place in order to support you mentally through this time. And my reason for blowing the lid on it was just because I thought, this has been an experiment. Have you contacted any other survivors of this procedure? Do you know anyone else with the condition that you have? Yeah, so I want to protect their, I, I want to protect their identity just because we, we speak regularly um, and it's not fair. You know, they're living their lives and yeah, they, they've found their happy place. Um, but yeah, I, I know personally of one who I meet regularly uh, and he is in regular contact with another who I've never met, but we're aware of each other. Um, through the inbox off the back of the Telegraph magazine article, I've had a hell of a lot of emails. Um, I will be honest, I've not come across any other cloacal extrophy patients, but I have had a hell of a lot of emails from the intersex community where individuals have grown up showing traits, massive traits, physical traits and behaviours of the opposite sex to of which they've been raised, but they had never been told by the parents or by the medical profession that they were intersex. 
And it's only through their own private consultations and digging and getting access to their records, which often have been hidden, that they found that they've been born into sex in the first place. This is quite incredible. And what's also incredible is that you decided to waive your anonymity, that of course you're entitled to, to speak about deeply personal issues. I mean, there's nothing more personal than the intimate bits of our bodies when we're talking about sexual functioning, when we're talking about bowel and bladder dysfunction, when we're talking about all kinds of things that many people would just shy away from, understandably. And yet you're doing that to destigmatize this condition and to destigmatize the issue for others that have faced it. Can I ask you about the parents? Because you said, rightly so, some parents would not be understanding or supportive. Some might not be here anymore. Some might have split and be damaged themselves by what's happened to their children and the guilt. But how do your parents cope? How are they with you now and how are you with them? It really upsets me to see the odd comment, you know, like 90% of the comments are really, truly heartwarming. But there's this, you know, there's the odd comment that will question my parents' actions and you hear all sorts from, oh, the parents should be jailed for this and, and whatnot. And I think I really want to go into this a little bit because it, what happened to us happened to us as a family. Um, and, and my parents... In a lot of ways, I believe, you know, kind of superhuman in the same way people are saying, oh, it's amazing, Sophie, that you've been able to talk about these personal things. It's amazing that they've been able to get me to a place at 37 where I can talk about these things and not be dead and not been rocking in a mental institution. Um, you, to, for me to think, first off, at the birth, it was a very, very long labour. And you've got this poorly baby with organs on the outside of the body where the doctors are saying we need to act fast with this. Obviously, you've got the time pressure and you've got the emotional compassionate side of, oh, my God, this baby I've wanted so much is, is, is in danger. I can't lose this baby. As we've said before, Julie, in our earlier conversations, um, you know, we didn't have Google in those days. You can't just get out your smartphone um, and, and, you know, get a consultation online with a doctor within half an hour for 50 quid. Those things didn't happen. And you had to listen to, to the clinician. Um, they, they had it hard there. But where they had it harder is obviously they, they get told, raise this baby, a female. Um, we know this works. It's fine. Um there were obviously lots of difficulties with me growing up and my mental health. And they had, they had to navigate through that. With, you know, there was no back phone to ring. How do I handle this when my child starts fancying women? Or how do I handle this when my kid starts like, drinking heavily when they're 14 in fields? You know, how, how do I handle this when my kid says, why haven't I got a vagina? Do you know? Um, so we, I just want some of the audience, and I'm sure your audience are lovely people, but so, you know, some of the people that have been making these comments, I just really want them to put their self in my parents' shoes. And if they look at my life, to think, I've spent 37 years with, with, with these people. They have, they have held my hand through thick and thin. They have supported me and actively pushed me to go public on this because they know what a difference this could make to other children. Now, if they were bad by soul, they would be hiding this as deeply as they possibly could be. And they're not. They, they, they are lovely people. And so it sounds like, and obviously, you've all come through a huge amount together. So, Sophie, I want to talk to you now about gender ideology. Has that had anything to do with you deciding to speak out about your history, your condition, your circumstances? It's got everything to do with speaking out and speaking out now. Um, 
So uh, the, I decided that I wanted to speak out about my experiences in my life um, sort of 18 months ago after the incident in the hospital where we found out that this pseudo-vagina that had been rotting was causing me all this stuff. Um, and it, we were you know, in the process of working with a, a documentary company in the long term to get something out there. But um, I, I was feeling more and more and more and more angered and upset and riled by um, what I was reading in the media around um, how we're dealing with children that are presenting, feeling like they're in the wrong body. And I felt like um, we've built a lot of our pathways on John Money uh, and David Reimer um, had a lot to sort of, you know, the society could have learned a lot from him and, and, and should have learned a lot from him. And I felt if I came forward now that perhaps I could offer an, a, persp a perspective that might weigh into this debate in a way that others might not be able to because it's quite a unique journey. And what do you think about puberty blockers and the kind of pathway for gender dysphoric kids, kids that feel uncomfortable in their own body as they're approaching puberty? What, what's your view on that? I want to sort of start with my view to say that whenever... Um, just like whenever the world tries to stop you talking about something and it becomes a censored topic, I believe that's something that we should really start to look into into some detail. Um, and I read just yesterday about uh, Rasheen Murphy and all that stuff with the BBC. Uh, and obviously, I don't really know the details of what went on, but the fact that someone is questioning a pharmaceutical product then becomes something that you can potentially get cancelled over. I mean, it tells you that you're somewhere near the your fingers somewhere near the buzzer, and and Roisin Murphy, who I'd never heard of actually before this debacle, my musical tastes are hip hop or opera. That's it, you know, or or so or some nineteen seventies, a bit of glam rock and a bit of seventies soul. But I hadn't heard of her. She's extremely talented, obviously, as I've since discovered, and she said in a private Facebook group, didn't she? that she thought that puberty blockers were wholly inappropriate for kids, that Big Pharma was laughing all the way to the bank, that these kids are obviously have problems and messed up kids, which is true. And I know as, as a former messed up kid and a messed up adult that I've morphed into, that, that this is the case. I would have opted out of girlhood if I had had the chance. So she was, let's just be honest, she was right. She was being responsible and empathetic. But in uh, Great Britain in 2023, Julie, you're not allowed, you're not allowed to be responsible and morally correct or ethical if it goes, if it goes up against any kind of medical or government agenda. That's a censorship Britain. Um, and and, and I, it really up, it upset me reading that. But you know what? It didn't surprise me because it's not the first time. And obviously, you know, we've, we've, we've seen it everywhere, haven't we? The censorship going back a few years ago with J.K. Rowling and, 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 and her tweet that got absolutely blown out of proportion when, again, she was doing just the right thing, in my opinion. It's standing by, um, you know, what, what she felt was morally right. And, and the puberty blockers issue, um, without getting too riled up. Uh, I was looking for some stats in the UK and they're pretty hard to come by. But if you've got any, I'd love to hear, hear them. But over in Australia, I was looking at some stats and it was something like in the 90 percent, 92 percent of children that start on the puberty blockers then go on to the hormones. So while it's all right for them to say 
um, oh, you know, we're fairly certain the puberty blockers are safe. Well, one, I'm hearing lots of independent stories about people struggling with infertility. Two, I'm reading lots of things about effects on bone density and brain development. But let's put that aside and assume that what the medical profession are telling us is correct. I don't believe it, but they're telling us they're wholly safe. Well, let's assume that. If, if they're wholly safe and over 90% of, uh, of young people then go onto the hormones, we've then got to question the long-term safety of those hormones. Right. And I do have some stats here, which is that from the UK, because you've just cited Australia, where gender bonkery is, you know, up there. And here in the UK, figures from the gender clinics for kids show that 98% of those on puberty blockers go on to take cross-sex hormones. So they are not a waitful watching, pause, let's stand back and give that young person time to consider. It's the direct pathway for the vast majority to then take lifelong cross-sex hormones and any surgical intervention that often comes side by side. And what have you done there, Julie? I don't want to go too far off the topic, but I think there's many illustrations in life where Big Pharma have done this. But what we've done is we've got something that the body produces naturally uh, and is healthy for the body, but we can't monetize that. And we've managed to take away the usage of that and uh, and something that the body needs, replace that uh, with something that can be monetized. But not only that, um, has higher levels of risk than, than the natural I- I equivalent. Totally. And a few years ago, I went to Cambodia to do an investigation into the breast milk trade. And you're talking about very, very poor women in Phnom Penh, the capital, who had a choice between collecting garbage... Uh, for a few cents a day, or if they were pregnant, if they were new mothers, if they were lactating, in other words, sell their breast milk, which were would then go to, and they didn't get paid very much, trust me, which would then go across to the US because these men that were running this business were white Mormons, absolute heartless bastards, and the breast milk would be bought would be bought you may think by women who were unable to produce breast milk because of a medical issue but no their market was for men who had bought a surrogate baby in other words who had rented the womb off a woman you were talking about some women wealthy women who didn't want the hassle of having to pump breast milk when they went into the office to earn a huge amount of money. Or heterosexual couples that had commissioned a baby from a rent-a-womb contract. As you say, something that the body, for women, pregnant women, women who've given birth, produces naturally, in the vast majority of cases. And they've monetized it. And these women were sitting on a long, long, long desk and all of them had their breasts hooked up to these pumps and their milk was going into a central vat on the floor and sitting on their laps for many of the women who'd just recently given birth were hungry babies who didn't have enough milk because the, their mothers were forced into a situation to sell it. So literally milking these women like cows and 
taking food from a baby's mouth, which is the worst aspect, the worst interface of capitalism and patriarchy and racism I have ever seen. And I think that, that we're living in terrible times, where, as you say, we're, we're capitalising, we're monetizing hormones and we're monetizing the, in some cases, mutilation of young people, but medicalization of young people. Absolutely. And I, I, want, I want to pick up on that word you've just used, Julie, uh, of, of mutilating, because um, it's a word that I've, you know, tried to stay away from in, in, in other media. Same avenues. here. Same um, here. But I'm going to use it today. I'm going to, I'm going to support you on this because uh, I do believe that um, what we are selling these young children um, and, uh, you know, versus what is delivered to these young children. Uh, and for anyone that wants to come up against me with that, I have experienced uh, myself a gender reassignment. It might not have been my choice, but I have experienced that. Uh, I, I've also got friends who are trans, older trans people, younger trans people. Um, and, 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 and what I would say is that, you know, we're being told you can change gender. Well, that's not a lie. You can change gender because gender is a manufactured construct by John money in my opinion so of course we can we can change it um but those chromosomes those chromosomes will always be the same but that's not my problem the problems within the heart and the head that lead them down these avenues uh you know as as a young person I really want the the parents of these children to think, will those problems go away? If we think about it, if we really boil down what a reassignment is it, it, you know, we've got dangerous chemicals coming into the body, right? That could later cause these these children a hell of a lot of problems. We've we've got surgery that is 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 often removing things, including the ability to reproduce, that may lead to sexual dysfunction. We've got many, many, many cases where these reassignments are leading to incontinence that those people never had before. And when we come to talking about building vaginas, and I'm not trying to get really delicate about this, but we're talking about an open wound that needs to be dilated in order to not close um, and, and and that's the reason I find myself with the mass today because potentially they didn't tell my parents about that that vagina that was was placed in at day two obviously it prolapsed and it got pushed back in but were they expecting parents to dilate a two-day-old baby that's where my head's been going. So yeah, I am going to use the term genital genital mutilation. And I don't want to offend any trans people that have been through these surgeries and are happy. And I don't want to offend any child that has taken this pathway and it makes them feel great and it's solved all of the problems. But we have to remember where there's big money to be made, there is a sell. You know, you can end up driving home with a used car you never even knew you wanted because the salesman was bloody good. And it's only yeah. when you get home that you realise the clutch is knackered and the turbo's gone. But at that point, you've got no warranty. And do you know what? how I'm seeing the trans community being treated when you go back with your used car and you say, I want my warranty, they not my, not my funeral. You're absolutely right. And it's such a pleasure to speak with someone as compassionate and as intelligent and as interesting as you. And let's carry on this conversation, please, Sophie. Uh, I'll come and visit you. We need a face-to-face chat because there's much more to say, isn't there? And your journey really is at the beginning. And this is going to, I think, become a really important landmark in the way that we discuss these issues. Thank you, Dewey. And just so that you know that we're on a similar page, like I was running quite a busy business for many, many years. I'm no longer running that business. And my job right now is my goal is to stop this for those children. 
Thank you for listening. I'm sure we'll all agree that Sophie is fascinating and compassionate and empathetic. And I'm really grateful that she's opened up and spoken out. It can only do good. Until next time.